1: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Since you're an economist, and I, by the way, I, the topic of your book, Talent, is, is a favorite topic of mine. Talent by Tyler Cowen and Daniel Gross. How to identify energizers, creators, and winners around the world but uh I am curious about your economic views given that we're in such a vol- volatile period right now well first let me ask you a theory my theory is and you know the saying well the threat is stronger than the execution yes. my theory is the Fed is playing a game of chess and they have not reduced a single dollar of monetary supply and yet the world is acting as if they had and that in itself is causing a deceleration of inflation what do you think of that theory
0: I agree with that theory. I think there's a 50% chance there will be a recession, but I'm hoping it's a fairly mild one due to all the savings built up and some positive momentum in labor markets and also some of the service sectors that are coming back.
1: I feel like supply shock inflation always works itself out in the long run, either because the supply starts coming through or we find alternatives. Monetary inflation is a little bit more of an issue, although there's as you've mentioned in, to me in the past, it's high demand for the U.S. dollar always. But what 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 are the inflation risks? Like, what are people worried about?
0: I think people are worried that the Fed does not have the stones to, in essence, cause a recession and elect a Republican president, to put it bluntly. Whatever you think of that prospect, uh, the Fed may not be happy about it. And there's some chance it could be Donald Trump. And the, the risk is the Fed just waits too long, dilly-dallies, oh, we'll, we'll do more next month and never really get around to it. And we'll just have like six to 8% inflation for way too long. And then finally, an even steeper recession. That's the risk.
1: Okay. Yeah. And is, is the risk of steeper inflation? Let's say inflation stays at, at roughly 6%. I'm making up a number, which by the way, is far higher than it's been for a long time. Like the fed was dying to get it up to 2%. And now it's at 6%. And you know, of course, the, the U.S. has prospered since inflation really hit its stride 100 years ago. And w- when does inflation become too risky? Because obviously it's not hyperinflation. Like, what are we worried about?
0: Here's my worry. So far, we're not seeing this, to be clear, that workers look at 6 to 8% inflation, demand 6 to 8% pay raises. That, in turn, continually boosts inflation. And then they demand higher pay raises, and it becomes a kind of devil circle. Very clearly in the data, that is not happening. But it could happen. And that's what I'm watching out for. I think it's well below 50% chance that that happens, but it's not impossible. It is a thing that could occur over the next two years.
1: I'm wondering how much what the Fed does is just manipulating psychology as opposed to taking real monetary actions, and if that would be successful enough, as it seems to be right now.
0: I think they have to actually do some things, though. So it's like parents and children. The parents can scare the kids, but at some point, they have to spank them, take away the candy, <laughs> cut the allowance. You can't never do nothing, right? Right. So you're always playing a game. You try to do as little as possible. But these are big enough inflation numbers. The Fed does have to pull out a stick at some point, in my opinion. And they have delayed doing that far too long.
1: The ramifications, of course, could be that people get so scared that, you know, the market tanks. But it, it feels like the market, again, the monetary supply right now is at an all-time high today. <laughs> So it's not like right. the Fed's done anything. So maybe the markets just, at some point, they'll finish anticipating and start to relax once the, you know, it's sort of the buy the rumor, sell the news kind of effect. Like once certainty starts to hit, okay, this is what the Fed's doing, maybe then the markets will be less volatile.
0: But keep in mind, last year, M2 went up 40%, right? We can't do that again. You can debate what that number should be. It should not be a negative number, maybe, you know, 5 to 10% would be okay. But they've got to move from 40% to something much lower. It's going to hurt.
1: And it could be hard to do because it seems like the, the money multiplier, You know, the amount of times a dollar is passed around in the economy, we haven't really felt the full effect of that yet because we're still kind of coming out of the pandemic. There still aren't the supplies to buy. So it still might be the case that M2 grows just from the simple inertia of, You know all the money printing that's
0: happened and i would stress look we've never been in the aftermath of a true pandemic before in modern history so no one knows what the heck they're doing they won't come out and say that but the honest view is we don't know what's going to happen we don't have the exact correct policy advice for anyone so it's going to be harder to get it right in 2022 than it would be in any other normal year so the chance we screw this up is above average.
1: So what, what would you do? You're, you're the Fed chairman. What would you do?
0: I would have six months ago started and accelerated the rate hikes, even a year ago, in fact. And I would make it clear to the markets, I mean business, and I would risk that recession and not you know, play footsie. So as you said a moment ago, the money supply has never been higher. So they've been talking this game for many months, but we're still waiting to see it. Like. They've still been doing quantitative easing. Well, that's like ending in May. Now we're in May, but my goodness, what? Why did you wait till May? What was wrong with January?
1: I I think their theory might be that there's the demand for the U.S. dollar is always going to be so great that it will, you know, temper the effect of of inflation.
0: I think that's a correct theory, but inflation is still too high, and voters will hate it. They will turn on it if they have to. They'll turn on the Fed. We're in an ugly situation.
1: Yeah but does it get does it get better you're optimistic though
0: i'm cautiously optimistic but expecting a decent chance of a recession
1: even though the yield curve right now is 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 fairly steep it's not
0: inverted i don't think yield curves predict very well our saving okay. grace i think is a lot of sectors will be booming just because other parts of the economy are coming back like maybe more people will go to movies right whatever it is you think people will do more of That will boom even in the middle of this recession, and that will be weird. It will not be a fully consistent across-the-board recession. Kind of like 2001 was a very inconsistent recession. Exactly. I think that's a good analogy. So I don't think it will be that bad, depending on what you do. All right, good.
1: On to talent. Yes. It's an interesting book because at first it seemed like your definition of talent wasn't quite how I think of talent. Like at first it seems like this is a book of how to find good talent, like when you're hiring or investing or whatever. But then of course, that brought into the discussion of, of what is talent and how do you identify it? And is there any benefit to any of the methods for identifying it? But what's your view? Like, wh- why did you write this book? And you wrote that your co coauthors, Daniel gross. Why'd you guys write this book?
0: Daniel is a venture capitalist, a very successful angel investor. He is a practitioner. I thought what made sense was to have two authors, an academic and a practitioner. I'm also a practitioner myself, handing out fellowships, uh, but not in the way that Daniel is. So we think in America today, there is a crisis of talent. Most projects, the constraining factor has not been capital. It has been the human ability to execute on them. So there's not actually a seminal book on talent, and, and we thought we should write it.
1: Why do you think there's a crisis of talent? Cause let, let's compare it to other countries. So obviously the, the, the rising countries, I don't wanna say we worry about because in a competitive way, but the rising countries where, the, where we see, you know, innovation happening are China and India in large part, because the population is so great, you're going to find talent there. But why, why, are, why do you think the, it seems like the U.S. is getting better in terms of the quality of its content, of its talent.
0: I think the world is getting better in terms of how much talent it has, but our ability to find and mobilize it has not kept up with that. So you mentioned India. There's so much more talent coming out of India today than, say, 30 years ago, but so many people in India fall through the cracks. They're never discovered. They don't get to the right school. To a lesser degree, the same is true in America. We still have many forms of discrimination, not only the obvious ones, but discrimination against ugly people, against people who weigh too much and so on. Believe me, I know all about that that first one. (laughs) And uh, we just have these overly bureaucratized hiring processes full of credentialism, which for some jobs is fine. But people, you know, the John Lennons of today who are not going to college are not getting the chances they ought to have.
1: Well, you know, and it's interesting because you look at the educational system and let's say you're talented at something but you have great grades, you're going to be encouraged to pursue the great grades as opposed to the talent. If you're talented at something, but you have poor grades, you might be encouraged to pursue the talent because parents or colleagues will see this as a a route to a paycheck as opposed to grades. But in general, we're encouraged to just memorize facts, take multiple choice tests, which are not a good indicator of talent and, and get a job based on, like you say, those credentials. And, and that, that seemed like a, more of a, const- as you point out in the book, that was more of a constraint in the past than now. Fewer, fewer companies require a college degree, for instance. Fewer companies you know, require you know, great test scores. So it seems like we're, we're getting better.
0: I think the last year or two, there's been positive progress. But most of the last 20, 30 years is to require more credentials. We have Uber drivers with master's degrees, right? Bartenders with master's degrees. That can't be right. Uh, There's one state, Maryland, that has abolished college degrees for a lot of its routine jobs. They're the only state that has done that. There is something wrong with that picture. State governments are a major employer. In general, if you go to school today, maybe you're ADHD or maybe you just hate studying, but you have independent projects of your own that you excel at, even if they're quote unquote trivial, the deck is stacked against you and that is what should change.
1: So, okay, so let's start off with, the basics, like like, what do you think is talent? What does talent mean? And you know, this goes against Erickson's view of talent. You know, he's the ten thousand hour rule uh, guy. He's been on my podcast as well. Uh, rest in peace. He didn't believe in talent at all. That it was all about hard
0: work. We're all born differently. I would say, at the margin, I would prefer a hard worker to a lazy genius. But if you look at the people at the very tops of their fields, you know, Magnus Carlson or Pablo Picasso or Bill Gates, they are. Very, very, very smart. But here's the thing when you look at the data, other than people at the very, very top, smarts and achievement don't correlate that well. Smarts and wages don't correlate that well. You simply need people who are smart enough. And then you're looking for drive, persistence, energy, a person's ability to work well with others, figure out how he or she fits into a team, has much more to do with final success than smarts. And smart people are exactly the ones who get that wrong. They think it's all about smarts because they're in a way flattering themselves.
1: Well, well, a couple of things to unpack there. One is smart, I mean, you did a lot of uh, study, you, or you quote a lot of studies in the book about the correlation between IQ and career success, but is IQ a, a good definition of intelligence?
0: You can debate how good a definition it is, but it's the definition we have. It's the thing you can measure. SAT scores, GRE scores, they correlate pretty closely with IQ. Whether or not you think that's true, smarts, those are the numbers we have. I'm saying they're not that useful once the person is above a certain threshold.
1: Yeah, I I agree. But then you take like someone like Howard Gardner, who's a you know a social scientist at at Harvard, who t- has his theory of multiple intelligences. Like Michael Jordan, who again you mentioned in the book, has you could argue body kinesthetic intelligence uh, more than anything else, and certainly he has has talent that. And, and we don't measure for these multiple intelligences
0: uh, that's correct but I think of Jordan and many other athletes uh, first they're just really smart in fact if you listen say to Magic Johnson talk or LeBron James they're clearly very very smart people but they have other skills of drive and determination understanding teamwork understanding leadership I wouldn't really call them multiple intelligences I think they're their skills in addition to their very high basic level of smarts hmm.
1: it's interesting because You don't mention this so much in the book, although you you refer to chess a little bit. You're obviously, you're an incredibly talented person. When you were young, you were, when you were 16, right? You were a New Jersey state chess champion. 15. You had a talent in something that is a a field people consider a talent driven field. And of course you quote Vladimir Kopian in the book that, that it requires more than just talent. It requires incredibly hard work. And you describe Vladimir as someone who didn't work that hard and yet he's in the top 20 in the world of chess. So talent can get you pretty much all the way there, even without the hard work.
0: But I think a key feature of talent is can you spot the relevant hierarchies that you ought to be climbing and climb those rather than other ones. And I would submit if you're smart enough to be the number 20 chess player in the world, and that's the highest point you reach, you are a miserable failure. Your life kind of sucks. You don't earn that much money. You're not a household name. You're not Magnus Carlsen endorsing underwear for all of Norway. You could have been a success in crypto, investment banking, other areas. That's a great example of a failure, in my view.
1: It's so, you know, I wonder about that too, like, because you, you take almost any sport, the difference between number one and number 20 in athletic skill is can't be seen by the human eye. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're so close, the number one and number 20, that you can't tell so what is and your argument is then that incredibly hard work separates out that number one and number 20 like they're probably equally talented or maybe number 20 is more talented as Akopian sort of suggests but uh is it is that the case because we don't really know it's sort of uh
0: subjective but it's a kind of multiplicative model it's not just hard work hard, hard work obviously is important practice is important but the very top talents, if you want to stick with basketball, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, they understand how to make their teammates better. Steph Curry, Draymond Green. That is a very special talent. It's certainly related to intelligence, but it's quite distinct from intelligence. It's a way of looking into social structures and figuring out where do I fit in? How can I add the most value? And that is critically important in almost any team sport.
1: Yeah, that's that's fascinating That. Um what you said about how understanding the almost the nuances of what it takes for success someone who's talented is going to understand that more than just a hard worker they're going to say this is this is how i can this is how i can be more successful i can either make my teammates more successful and they then they're better at passing the ball to me or in in something individual like let's say mathematics or chess or whatever or music it's oh, I need to uh, get better at you know this particular way of playing the violin or I need to study the end games better or whatever. You, need, you, you know, maybe the talent is that you know a little bit more where your weaknesses and strengths are. There's some, a little bit more self-awareness.
0: And I try to test for that in interviews. So if I'm talking to someone who, say, is a Star Wars fan, I'll ask the question, like, did Yoda make good decisions? Was Yoda a good judge of talent? And I'm not too concerned with whether or not I agree with their answer, but whether they're capable of thinking about such things in an intelligent way. And if they're just totally baffled by the question, oh, Yoda, what? I don't know. You start to wonder, well, maybe they're not very good at thinking through this kind of question. If they have an answer, then you're getting somewhere.
1: I think we should make the rest of this podcast about Star Wars, (laughs) (laughs) because Yoda clearly did not recognize Palpatine right under his eyes just masterminding the complete destruction of the Jedi and takeover of the galaxy.
0: And most of his advice to to Luke, is to Obi-Wan, it's terrible, right? So Yoda is a kind of loser as a leader. But again, I'm not focused on whether the person agrees with me. I'm focused on have they thought it through in some manner. And if they have some complicated take on why Yoda and the final analysis was brilliant, because by the time you get to episode 19, it's all worked out. You know, and the the evil empire is gone, and the Death Star is blown up once again. Like that's fine. They've thought about it. Then I'm pretty happy.
1: Yeah, right. You can argue both sides. That, but and so you you kind of talk about this in this book. The 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 questions you can ask to sort of again not determine if the answers are correct or not, but how they answer is is important. And so you talk about this in the beginning, but then there's an appendix in the in the back of some good questions. Like, and I was going to ask you this. Because the word courageous is like an odd word in our society. You don't really think of, like courage is something you think of like the, the Wild West and someone, you know, was courageous and when they were attacked or whatever. But like, it's hard to know when someone's courageous in modern society. Like when, when have you been, so here's a question that you have. When have you been courageous
0: uh, in your life? Uh, I once had a stalker come and basically try to kill me in my classroom. And I left the classroom and had him chase me because I thought it was more important to save the people in my class than myself. That would be the honest answer. Why, why was he stalking you? I'd never met him. He was a crazy guy. Uh, I, I got off okay from it, but it was a harrowing moment. And at the time, I thought he might have had a gun.
1: Wow. And so did you run super fast?
0: <laughs> well, I can't run super fast, period. Uh, I did my best, I would say. But All I right. think it's interesting what you say about courage. John F Kennedy wrote a book, Profiles in Courage, right? When that book came out, no one thought the word courage was weird. Now you say, and I agree, the word courage has become weird. That is a sign of how screwed up we are. I think yeah. Elon Musk has had courage. He will get out there, put himself out there, say I'm going to try this, I'm going to get us to Mars. I'm going to, you know, do Tesla. People laugh at him, they short the stock. It's gone really well so far. We'll see. How it all finishes, but he has, in my opinion, remarkable courage
1: remarkable courage and and then but this and then I wonder this if this is where talent comes in. does he have remarkable courage and remarkable survivorship bias, because maybe many people have said it, and he's the one we know, or does is his courage what became a motivator, and he had the talent to understand what kind of teams to put together and and which I think he did by the way and 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 then execute on these things?
0: I've never met Elon Musk, uh, but I've had quite a few people who work for him tell me that, oh, on this project, he's not only the leader, he's the best engineer, period. Mm. That to me is a sign of extreme talent. Mm. He's willing to take risks. He's willing to put himself out there. Uh, he seems to be great on execution. He could be the supreme talent of our time, possibly.
1: Yeah, I mean, he certainly created a lot of a lot of value. And And what's interesting to me is The ideas always at first seem outlandish, but then he executes. Like the Hyperloop or the Neuralink, they're going to start testing these things. And they both seem like science fiction when he first mentioned them.
0: And even if they don't all work, even if one or two of them works, and already several of them are working, clearly, that's an amazing achievement. How many other people have more than one thing in their bag? Even the very most successful people, not that many.
1: Yeah, and and, you know what I wonder is... um, well, A, an ability to do and succeed at many things sort of shows some kind of talent at, not, at, at, at organizing and executing, which is important for success in anything.
0: And inspiring, right? Yeah. Like, here's it, how you should be. Here's how I am. Here's how dedicated I am. You may not quite reach my standard, but we expect a lot of you here. And people buy into that with top leaders.
1: And, and then using Elon Musk as an example like take SpaceX as an example. Uh, He didn't know how to build a rocket ship. He didn't know anything about, I don't know how airplanes work, but he, and he didn't go back to school and get a graduate degree in it. He read a bunch of books. He talked to a lot of smart people. He figured out who to hire, which is a critical component you mentioned in in the book. And he educated himself in all these different areas from brain technology to, uh, you know, physics to now maybe Twitter. We'll see if he does well with that.
0: And all he has is an undergraduate degree.
1: Yeah, which, which, which by the way, gra- our, the focus of specialization in graduate degrees almost hampers an ability to uh, succeed at many things.
0: To execute on projects, certainly. It may help you in research, uh, highly specific tasks, but it increasingly is departing from what you would call the startup mentality, the let's do something, let's be out there, Let's mobilize synthetic knowledge, inspire other people. It's hard to be a super specialist and be good in those other areas.
1: We, you know, on the one hand, it seems like talent is a little bit of an ability to go your own way against the crowd because almost by definition, the crowd, the average person is not the talent you want, but or, or it's, not, it's not as talented as others because the talented person is seeing things in a different way. But one of the questions I thought was interesting in terms of identifying talent is what view do you hold that the masses would largely agree with you?
0: That's a question where you you ask about a person's values. When you ask, what's the view you have where the masses disagree? Or what's the view you have where the smart people you know disagree? You start getting at how the person is different.
1: And I want to get to the, the identifying talent because it's very important. But let's say someone feels they're a talented writer and they're motivated and they're driven and they see the ways they need to improve. They're young. So they're not the best that they could be, but they see where their potential could go. If they do this, 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 and this, and everyone says to them, listen, you're not going to get a paycheck this way. It's a long shot for you to pursue it. Uh, and on and on. That's the typical advice that, that talented people might get. Uh, it does seem like also a talent to keep, going in the direction, like you're going to get more pleasure and potentially even more success if you go in the direction of of talent as opposed to suppressing
0: it. That's correct, especially in a world with YouTube and Substack, where you can make a good living. It's very hard to do, but you don't have to appeal to mass opinion. You can do extremely well in those media doing something fairly specialized. And to being an extreme. Correct. It may help you to be an extreme. Someone like Jordan Peterson. You yeah. know, some of it is centrist and some of it is quite unusual or weird. And he has a loyal, devoted following. That's what works in a lot of these new media or someone like Barry Weiss.
1: Yeah. No, Barry Weiss is incredible. I, I knew her. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal. She was the grammar editor. And ah. <laughs> she she
0: she must have, you know, battered you around, right? Oh, definitely.
1: And, uh, but she also, but that wasn't her talent, obviously her talent was being a really excellent commentator on, you know, human events, which has has driven her to success after success. And, and you too, she has an
0: amazing directness, Barry Weiss. She gets to the point in a millisecond and is is focused like a laser on, on telling or teaching you something. And that's a talent she has more than almost anyone else I know.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And and Tyler you're obviously you're a talented person and this is this is talent almost and I'm curious what you think of this this is talent almost in the general meaning of the word that if you're talented at one thing chances are you're talented at many things so you were obviously had this great talent at chess it's not easy for a 16 year old to be better than many people who have been playing the same or doing the same thing for as long as you've had lived and yet at 16 you, again you were a, a strong chess master and one of the top players around but you applied that talent to economics and, and other things so what what do you looking at yourself what are you talented at it's obviously not chess it's something else
0: i think i would rate myself highly on obsessiveness and collecting of information i think where i'm relatively weak is a kind of competitiveness i do best in areas when i'm just working on my own maybe honing some skill I'm not really focused on am I doing better than the other person? So chess was never the ideal game for me, even though I did well at it. I didn't hate losing enough to become a truly great chess player. that's that's kind of funny. like so and and this
1: this also asks about talent. like did you then you say you didn't hate losing enough to not get better? Were you just good? And you didn't work at it, and then but, but when you decided to get good at something like economics, you you far surpassed where you were at chess. Like like where does talent begin and, and, and where does talent end and work begin? Like, did you have to work at all to get to your level of chess or or no, because this would sort of disprove Dr. Erickson.
0: No, I was a good worker in chess, so when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I was working and studying chess more consistently than my peers. but I saw even back then that a bunch of them were more talented than I was, even if I had equal or better results. But also a light bulb went off in my head. And I'm like, if in chess, there are people smarter than I am, it's probably going to be true in other areas, even if I'm pretty smart. So I need to really work on my other skills, like managing people, uh, understanding social situations, coordinating projects, uh, sort of understanding what's the right thing to do. And the biggest thing chess taught me early on was that I can lose and there are people smarter than I am, even if I'm pretty smart. Some of those people smarter than I am, like right now, they're alcoholics in the gutter. I don't want to name names, but they haven't all done as well as a Copian, who you mentioned earlier.
1: Yeah, no, I mean it's it's a weird area because only until recently has there been money in in chess, and and talent ultimately does get drawn a little bit to where the money is, even if it's a, a hard a harder path than someone who just gets good grades and and works at a bank and so on.
0: But, you ever watch the Botez sisters? They're phenomenal talents on YouTube. Yeah, for radiating their personalities, they're pretty good chess players, but they're the, some of the top chess earners, and they have this other talent too.
1: That's that's true, and that's we, the the rise of social media has allowed people with some degree of talent in something to basically, if they're talented at at entertaining or social media or whatever, they could rise to the top. By, by intersecting their various talents.
0: So in some way, I'm like the Botez sisters without the looks to be clear, <laughs> but they have an ability to connect in a particular medium. And I think I have that too. And then my level of drive and obsessiveness to just work on that like all day, every day, day and night uh, is really quite strong. And that's what I've done. That, that's interesting. So like for you, it seems
1: also curiosity. Like you have, you have a large curiosity because if you go to your yes. blog, Marginal Revolution, it's all these amazing articles that you must pick out of somewhere, but it's you have to be curious to have found them in the first place. Like am- amazingly curious.
0: And at the margin, I'm not paid, so I'm just very well motivated, self-driven, and the motor just keeps on running.
1: So then, so then the question is, how do you find talent? Like, and and this is, I think, kind of the core of your book, uh, and and. As an example, you refer to, to Moneyball, which was Michael Lewis's book about a, a, a better way using data to find talent in baseball. And now it's been applied to basketball and, and many other endeavors. And I wonder if a data-driven approach, people have attempted to do it for all sorts of jobs and not really succeeded. Like, like for instance, IQ, as you mentioned, is not really a good you know, Moneyball way of identifying a, a job applicant.
0: Data is great when you have it. Most of the time you don't, and we're not going to have it soon. So a, a lot of our book is about how to mobilize your intuition. But I think the first and most important point is most people don't invest enough in building out their soft networks. So it's not just whom can you find, it's who will find you. And that's so often the number one question. Who will show up at your door? Who will come up and speak to you after your talk? Who will listen to your podcast and then write you an email? So that's a huge part of finding talent is for you to be found by the right set of people.
1: I agree with that but it also depresses me a little in the sense that I feel I used to be better at that and lately I haven't been. And so is that talent or is it me getting older or or am I just like not as not, not as motivated in some way as I might have used to be when I was younger?
0: It could be any mix of those, I don't know. Uh but are you sure the quality of people coming to you is going down?
1: No, the quality of people coming to me is not going down. It's just that I don't you know you have a you have a great example in the book which is going to probably every, every book at least one thing changes my life and this one might. You you um talked to Sam Altman the former uh, CEO of Y Combinator about what he looks for and he he says out of all his founders of you know he invests in lots of companies and he says out of all the founders of the companies the ones that return emails the fastest are by far the most successful. And I'm really bad at that, particularly lately. (laughs) I used to be better, but now I'm horrible.
0: Whenever Sam writes me, I feel this great pressure (laughs) to respond immediately. It, It is my inclination anyway. But if you don't, then that's not your priority, which is fine. You may have some other priority and you're responding to those people more quickly. You're doing something more quickly, right?
1: Maybe. I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, my talent's taking a break these days.
0: <laughs> that I don't believe.
1: Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H-I-M-S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? (laughs) Yes, I definitely got to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the hims app, track progress and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims hims.com slash james. Can you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. hims.com slash james. That's how I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hims. That's hims.com slash james for your personalized treatment options. hims.com slash james. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You know, so again, what motivated you to write this? Because it's different than other books on talent. Other books on talent sort of ask the question, does talent exist? You know, there's one question that you don't, quite answer in the book or which is how to find what you're talented at like it's almost as if people are naturally drawn to their talents and don't need to to sweat it that much
0: we don't consider how individuals should find what they're good at we do consider how you as a boss maybe giving out fellowships uh, should find those people but that would require another book Uh, my co-author and i do want to write more on these topics we might write a new book on how do you then mentor talent but this is about finding the people, not how they find themselves. That's right. important too. And and
1: you know, at least one of your conclusions are you know these kind of interesting ways to communicate with people, so that and then and then analyzing in some way that, like you said, could be intuitive. Were there answers interesting enough that they they're separated from the crowd, and, and right. so talent can be seen
0: de the conversation is a simple way to put it. Not simple, but yes.
1: <laughs> um, give, give more example, like give specific examples of how these questions that you've asked people have, have worked and, and discovered.
0: Uh, here's a common example of a question asked all the time. It's okay as a question, but everyone is prepared for it. Something like, in your previous job or jobs, what is it you did wrong? Give us an example. That's fine. Anyone halfway intelligent is prepared for that question. They have an artificial example, which they recite as if they're reading you know, from a script. You don't learn that much. You learn they put in basic crap. They're not going to say anything too incriminating unless they're just fools, right? Uh, a question my co-author and I like to ask is, what are the open tabs on your browser right now? That's a question you cannot fake the answer. No one is prepared for it. They will be you know, after the book comes out to some extent. But you learn a lot about who they are and what they do what are your open tabs like tell us
1: yeah it's interesting when i was um this is 20 years ago i was raising money for a hedge fund and i was speaking to a big investor who also was a hedge fund manager and he asked me what am i reading now other than investing related books and it turned out i was reading a history of baseball which i'm not i'm not interested in baseball at all but i love sports stories so i was reading a history of baseball by Stephen jay gould who this guy was disgusted by because he didn't like Stephen <laughs> jay gould's political views but he still liked the fact that i had some other book i was reading other than investing
0: yes and then i like to ask people about the book so if if you said oh i'm reading Stephen jay gould i would say what does Stephen jay gould get right and wrong about how to assess baseball players and it, again it's not whether i agree with your answer but it's has that question occurred to you and if that question hasn't occurred to you, you know, maybe I don't want you hiring other people for me. But if you have a good answer, then it's like, oh, th- this fellow thinks about this all the time.
1: Yeah. So what's an example where you've, where you've used these questions and you had an interesting result or you've, seen, or, or you've seen an example of this?
0: What I like to do is get people on the, what's either their favorite book or their favorite movie, their favorite play, can be any of those, and just get them talking about it, not to test their factual knowledge. Uh, but I've found uh, I get to speak to a lot of smart people in my fellowship program called Emergent Ventures. The good performers typically always do well with those questions. There's something they've thought about. Uh, You know, what's the best Shakespeare play and why? And Hamlet, who makes the biggest mistake? It can be anything. Again, you're not trying to test their factual knowledge. Just what kind of questions do they ask themselves? That's what you want to know. You want to get at that with the question they cannot prepare for. And someone puts them on the spot. You're also testing, how do they respond to surprise? Are they freaked out? You know, Can they handle it? When can they just say, I don't know? Also, that can be a good sign. Yeah, that's
1: really interesting. Because like, for instance, I was just thinking about that question. Like, What answer would impress you if someone had never read Hamlet and, and you asked them about Hamlet?
0: <laughs> if they gave me an answer about how they would discover an answer to that question. They would say well there are these three people i know who who might have a good answer to that question and here's how i would figure out which of the three is the one to ask that would be a good answer it's like they've thought about it well i've got to go ask someone right that's a pretty healthy response
1: yeah yeah
0: all right and then
1: um what about what about the kind of classic google style interview questions like how many people are playing piano in chicago this second you know what about those types of questions
0: You know, Google itself has given up on those questions. They might be fine for a very, very narrow range of jobs. And I do mean very narrow, certain types of quants and hedge funds. But mostly they're a waste. You're testing for math ability at best, but there's better ways to test for math ability. And you're not testing for perspective or climbing the right hierarchies or ability to synthesize knowledge or work with other people. So I don't use them. I don't like them.
1: Yeah, although I guess they do test a little bit for reasoning. Like how do you how do you formulate a process for coming up with the answer to that question?
0: But it's a very particular kind of quantitative reasoning. And yeah. in most workplaces, the kinds of reasoning you have to do are about the other people. The most important question can be which of these people should I ask for an answer and whom should I trust? And that's typically way more important than like how many pianos are there in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> you know.
1: Well, it remind all of this stuff reminds me of uh, the classic eighty twenty rule. That twenty percent, uh, there's always twenty percent. Let's say you have a goal, you could pick the right twenty percent of activities that, uh, uh, you know, that would create eighty percent of the value. And it seems to me like what you're saying is these people could hone in on the right questions they need to ask themselves to create eighty percent of a good answer in some way correct and similarly for the people who are talented who want to improve they know the 20% that that they can do right now to get
0: 80 80% more success and sometimes intelligence even hinders some people in getting that to work for them because they think they're too smart they're used to being smarter than everyone they don't ask for enough advice they don't take in enough feedback their feelings get too hurt when they've screwed up you know on that you'd prefer the more intelligent person but as I said, achievement and intelligence are less correlated than smart people realize. And, and so for yourself, like, what's, what's
1: your 20% that you would need to do right now to improve towards whatever success you, you want, whether it's financial success or, or more acclaim as an economist or, or more readers as a writer? Like, what's, what's the 20% you think you can do to, to get more success?
0: What I do is I I write literally every day. I've done that for quite a few decades. And I just think I will have greater facility with ideas. I will get feedback on virtually everything I write, a lot of it being online. I'll learn the ins and outs of different arguments. So then when I give talks or do podcasts, people ask me questions. It's material I've thought about before. It's not that I think I have all the answers, but I have something to say about the question. Because I've written about it at some point over the last now it's more than forty years.
1: Yeah, and so 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 journaling or right not journaling but writing becomes a discovery process for you as well as uh you know a, a one to many educational process for for others.
0: It's, it becomes a way of thinking, and then even if I don't remember everything I wrote, I feel I can reconstruct it pretty readily, in a way that if you just sit around and think thoughts it seems to me with most people that goes nowhere and you need to interact with other people in person on WhatsApp, whatever you do all the time, every day, just interact, interact, have your different small groups of smart people who are willing to say you're wrong.
1: What, what, what's your, what's your favorite hobby right now?
0: I don't know what a hobby is. Uh, (laughs) collecting information is my work and it's my hobby. So I, I love to travel. Uh, I'm very interested in food, obviously economics, history. Uh, My wife and I collect art. Which of those are hobbies? I couldn't tell you. I guess that, well, collecting
1: art, it could be a financial related, or it could just be because you love good art.
0: It's a cognitive test too. It's a real challenge. Like, can I find works that are, you know, better than what the market prices indicate? It's a very tough cognitive test.
1: Yeah, and like, what would you do right now if you wanted to get better at that?
0: at buying art. Uh, You need to to look at art face-to-face, not online. Just start buying something in any area. There's a lot of cheap areas. I started collecting Haitian art, which is a country where art prices typically are relatively low. And you hone your eye, you make some mistakes. Uh, You have real skin in the game all the time, right? Uh, You meet other collectors, you talk about works, you listen to artists, you learn a great deal about culture, history, religion, many things but it's also a cognitive test for you can i look at a new something an artwork an artist and somehow make sense of it great training for many other things
1: you know it's interesting because art uh successful art there there's some there's some data around this as well which is that the most successful artists even modern artists have traveled around the most and displayed in a greater variety of galleries not necessarily great galleries but just they've had a larger variety of galleries in general. Like they, they put themselves in situations to, as you said earlier, for someone to sh- call up and say, hey, can I show your art? And it's all over the world it is the best artist. And so it seems like then those talented at art not only know how to, let's say paint well, but they know how to get a large variety of galleries to display their art. So someone who's talented at buying art would not only look at kind of the painting and the uh, religion and the history and all that stuff, but understand what makes an art, uh, you know, some artists who are equally skilled, some are going to be more successful than others because they understand, as you were saying earlier, the the societal structures around art better and they have more understanding of the nuances better. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, like you mentioned the Botez sisters, for instance, they understand kind of to be, successful at earning money via something as obscure as chess. They needed to get good at like reaching out to people who love watching Twitch. And those kind of talents
0: are very valuable and, and kind of underappreciated, I think. Picasso was insanely curious, right? He drew from African art. He drew from Pacific art. You look at the Beatles, Lennon McCartney, insanely curious about other forms of music. Yeah. Paul in particular draws from reggae, draws from Electronica, drew from Stockhausen classical music choral music it goes on and on
1: yeah and so synthesizing all of these different things is a talent by itself that feeds other talents right which i think you do very well again because of of you know just the sheer number of articles you curate the different topics of books you write and so on and so i guess finally i'm wondering how far can you get without any talent so clearly you can't get in the top 1% like someone who just works hard is not going to beat Serena Williams in tennis. But how far can someone get with motivation, but not necessarily some sort of function in their brain that's particularly good at what their domain requires?
0: Well, everyone has talent. You do need more than just hard work. But just for an extreme example, we used to think that Down syndrome individuals essentially were hopeless, but they've gone on to do things like star in TV shows, perform tasks, have achievements, that we never would have thought possible. Now, I'm no expert on how that happened, but we have so systematically underestimated the potential of people. Or you see this in basketball. Remember when Gilbert Arenas took those crazy three-point shots? Like, oh, so far away from the basket. How can you do that, crazy Gil? Now everyone does it, and people have learned how to make them at like 40%. So there is much, much more potential out there than we know to this day. Yeah,
1: and and I think the the educational system almost. Have you ever have you ever uh, thought about, you know, right now K through twelve, people go to six subjects a day. So you spend forty two minutes in one subject, English. Then you spend forty two minutes in math. Then forty two minutes in history. Then forty two minutes in physical education, and so on. As opposed to like an immersive approach where I want to study math. So I'm going to spend all day, every day on math. And I wonder how the results of our educational system would be different if we allowed students to take a more immersive approach instead of switching topics every 40
0: minutes. I think there's way too much homework. And those key evening hours or weekend hours where you could be doing something useful, spent doing homework, getting grades, getting a 4.0, trying to get into wherever. Uh, That, in my view, is a huge waste. And the the very top creators are frustrated by it. And we should cut the quantity of homework, I don't know, to a quarter or a fifth of what it is now.
1: Yet that won't happen. Like, it seems like we're not on a path towards that. Although who knows if if the importance of college decreases, then maybe we will be.
0: You know, I think uh, I grew up in an earlier era where homework was much less. There was less competition in a superficial way. Uh, It was much healthier for creativity.
1: Yeah. No, I, I I agree. I see my kids like they practically have tears at two in the morning, still trying to finish their homework that's due the next day at seven a.m. And it just it just kills me that they have no time to explore anything else other than grades.
0: And getting into college has become a task of its own. I'm advising some young people; they're applying places like Stanford, MIT. They tell me it basically takes six months of their life to apply and they have to compete that every essay is perfect in the right way. Uh, that, to me, is a, a huge error. If you make people compete on the basis of a pretty phony essay, uh, you're penalizing creativity, and you're rewarding being able to game the system in a certain way.
1: Yeah, and I do think the system can be gamed. Like, take MIT as an example. All, all you want for 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 anything is to be a monopoly. So if 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 I was... A young person applying to mit a i would apply to the english department <laughs> and b i would uh take like you know nascar racing lessons because how many and let's say you're particularly moved
0: to north dakota right
1: yeah that, then you're guaranteed mit and geographic Stanford.
0: balance you'll be mm-hmm. the atlanta won't do that for you but if you move much further south maybe that would work well, it was horrible
1: where where we grew up. You know, I grew up in New Jersey. So, Ooh. being being a, a Jewish person <laughs> for the metropolitan area, good grades were useless. Like that had no bearing at all on whether you got accepted to college because everybody in my category was was applying to every college. So you had to find you had to find things to to stand out. And I guess that's that's the other thing about talent is that, uh, well, it's the thing we discussed earlier, which is that in some ways you have to stand out. But most importantly, there's kind of the obvious things. All the talent in the world won't make you a good employee if you're not honest, if you're not willing to do teamwork, if you're not, you know, there's, there's kind of this foundational level too,
0: which is almost more important than talent. And one piece of advice we give is just never hire people with bad values. It doesn't matter what. If they're more talented, it makes them worse. They're more noxious, more destructive. Just don't do it flat out.
1: How, do you, how can you determine if someone has bad values? Because usually someone with bad values is very good at disguising that
0: a lot of times you can't. Again, if they have a track record, you should put more time into calling references. And if there's a whiff of bad values, be more suspicious. Uh, when you interview them, ask questions just about what they perceive as the relevant injustices in their life. See how upset they get. See how they frame huh. those answers. But it can be hard. Yeah,
1: you're right. If they're a victim, then they're if they have a victim kind of response, they're more likely to blame someone And that creates distance. And of course, that's not good for the work environment.
0: Even if they were correct in a particular instance, uh, I get wary when there's too much of a victim mentality in people.
1: Right. Because they're the common denominator.
0: Right. If those are their focal stories, I would beware. So like someone
1: reading this, let's say someone who's going to be an employee, not a a person hiring, but someone who's going to be an employee. What's their takeaway about how they could cultivate... uh, not fake, but cultivate their talents enough that they you know, hit the right answers and, and are more unique than they started out
0: as? Well, you have to know your sector, right? So in venture capital and baseball, the answers are going to be different. But the person interviewing you or assessing you, size them up as a talent. What are their talents? What do they value? Mm. And see, do I have that in myself? Uh, maybe you're just not the right match. But be hyper aware of what they are as a talent, as if you were interviewing them, and play to that in an honest, sincere way, because that's what they're going to be good at spotting. I wonder if
1: it's related to, like, in a weird way, online dating. Yes, we were talking to someone about the data of online dating. Uh, Seth Stevens Davidowitz. I don't know if you know him. Uh... I
0: know his books. Yeah, they're yeah, great. Yeah, uh,
1: he, he's a very smart guy, and he and he was saying with online dating, the worst thing you could be is kind of just like above average, you, (laughs) you need to be extreme. Like people need, need to either love you or, or hate you not kind of be, if you're, if you're ranked on a a one to five, you need to either be a five or uh, you need to have a lot of fives and ones, but, but fewer threes. Cause even if you start dating someone as a three, they're probably going to leave you for someone who's a one or a five,
0: who's more polarized. I met my wife 20 years ago online, match.com. I didn't try not to be a weirdo. I was myself. <laughs> and it's worked out ever since. I told her I'm a chess player. You know, I love uh, Soviet movies. She's from Moscow. Uh, I, I didn't hold back on being weird. And she thought this guy's okay. That, that's good. And,
1: and still together, happy ever since, happily ever after.
0: And she's less weird than I am. So she uh, she's somewhat weird, but came across as the mix of weird and normal that she is.
1: Well, that, that that's great. And and look, I love the book. I'm so interested in this topic. There's really just an extensive library of books about talent in general, um, which I'm sure you're you're aware of, but this is now added to my my list of those. So talent by Tyler Cowan and Daniel Gross, how to identify energizers, creators, and winners around the world. And for me, it wasn't just about identifying. It's how to understand what my talents and skills were and what I need to be better at. You know, as I was reading this, that's that's what I was thinking selfishly, I might add. but uh, uh, really, really great book, a really different perspective. And as always, thanks again for your perspective on not only this, but the economy. so you're you're my go-to economist. and and believe me, I'm a Twitter certified economist, so I know what I'm talking
0: about. <laughs> Thank you very much. A pleasure chatting with you. You are a great talent in a number of ways, and uh, I very much appreciate that. All the more.